All right, well, let's open with a word of prayer. I'll give, you, I'll give you a little background, get us caught up, and we'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Again, we thank you for everyone who's here, those that are watching on live stream. May you minister to every heart. I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. So we, we talked about it as we've gone through it, First Chronicles again and Second Chronicles written by Ezra to the children of Israel and Judah who had been in bondage for 70 years who are coming home. And most of them, because uh, it had been 70 years, many, if not most of them, had never been there. So they're coming home to re-inhabit a land, and they're getting a history lesson. First Chronicles, we saw mainly focusing on the life of King David. Second Chronicles, King Solomon. Now, a few weeks back, a few chapters back, Israel now has been taken into bondage by the Assyrians. And the only kingdom really that is, when we get to this chapter, still dwelling within the land of promise are, is Judah. So the 10 tribes to the, nor- to the north was called Israel. The two tribes to the south was Judah, and that's where Jerusalem is. So there are eight good kings in Judah. Still a majority were, uh, were not good. All the kings in Israel were not good, and that's why they're already in captivity. So as we come to tonight's text... One of the eight good kings uh, to rule over Judah. We saw him last week, and I'll, I'll give you a little catch up on that in a moment. His name is Josiah. Now, Josiah is a good and godly king. But what we're going to see with Josiah, just as we did Amaziah, both of these guys were good and godly kings. But we're going to see tonight that his life is going to end on a bad note. Uh, not totally horrific, but still a bad note. And it can happen to any of us. This is a warning for all of us that we need to make sure as believers, we don't lose sight of the fact that we need to stay humble, broken, and desperate and usable for the kingdom of God. So Judah had 120 years before he fell into the bond, in bondage uh, to Babylon, despite the eight godly kings and the example of how God deals with sin and rebellion and Israel's captivity, they still would ultimately fall away. So they had seen what happened to Israel in their ungodly behavior. They saw them taken away captive. And you would think when you look at somebody else and you see the consequences in their life, you're thinking, yeah, we don't want to do that. But you know, don't we do the same thing? We can see the consequences in the life of other people who are struggling but we may not learn that lesson the way that we should. So often we can view, here's, here's something I want to say. So often we can think that our sin is different. Well, yeah, they did it and they got in trouble, but I'm not doing it like that way. So I'm sure God's going to cut me some slack. And I've counseled more people that will say to me, well, yeah, you know, I know that, you know, like I've done a lot of counseling with people struggling with drugs. And several people would say, well, yeah, I'm like, how many of your friends have overdosed? And like, oh, I can't even count. How many? Oh, I don't know, 40? You had 40 of your friends die of drug overdoses. Yeah, but I don't use drugs the way they use drugs. And I'm not going to die. It's not going to happen. And then they die, sadly. And, and so the reality is that when it comes to sin, we can look at other people's sin as being worse than ours, and we can make excuses for why our sin is okay. And sadly, that's kind of what Judah's going to do here at the end we're going to see that Judah in these last two chapters does not finish well. We expect that we can continue in sin and there will be no consequences, even after we've seen the consequences in others. We see all the casualties all around us going on and on, and because people refuse to learn from the consequences of others, you know, sin deceives you and sin lies to you. and convinces us that the outcome, again, will be different. So praise God for His grace, but God's grace is not God's permission to continue in sin. Amen. Now, we saw Josiah last week, and we saw that his dad was an ungodly king. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, we saw Manasseh. You guys remember Manasseh? How did Manasseh start out? He was, he was as evil as they get. And I talked about how evil he was for 45 minutes because I wanted to drive the point home to how evil and wicked and vile and what kind of a horrible human being that he was. What a vile, wicked man sacrificing his kill, children to uh, false idols. Uh, all of Israel, all of Judah following after him into evil. He lived a life of moral depravity. You get to the end of the chapter and he gets saved. Amen. He gets right with God. And isn't it good to know that you can't be so evil that you're, that you're beyond saving? Amen? That where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Then he had a son, and his son was, 
as evil as he was, except Manasseh had repented, his son didn't. And then his, that son had Josiah. Now, Josiah, it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. By the way, it doesn't get better than that. Can there be anything better said about you or about me than he or she did what was right in the sight of the Lord? There could be nothing greater to put on your tombstone than that. Well, Judah became king at eight years old. And by the time he was 16, he started seeking to know the Lord better. And then by the time he was 26, at 16, he rid the land of all the idols that his dad had put up. He broke down all the altars to the idols. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord as a 16-year-old. He restored and rebuilt the temple, and he began to have Passover worship. Again, at 26, that's when he restored the temple worship and sacrifices. Ahilka, the priest, found the word of God. The word of God had been missing. And because he restored the temple, when they went back into the temple to clean it up, and they're putting it back together, they found the word of God. So the word of God had been lost. And Hoka takes it to Josiah, and he reads the word of God. Now, more than likely, that would have been the Septuagint, which is, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he reads those five books of the Bible, and Josiah is so pierced by it that he tears his clothes, and he begins to weep. But then he gathers all the people together and reads it to them. And then he brings the Levites and all the priests back in and has them going around teaching the word to everyone. See, Josiah was a godly king because Josiah feared God and loved God's word. And you know what? If you want to be a godly man or a godly woman, that's where it begins. You need to fear God and love his word. Amen? When you fear God and you love his word, you'll fall more in love with the author and it will transform your life. And yet we have... When I, like I said, and again, I'm open to, we all can use counseling from time to time. I need it sometimes, right? Where you need godly counsel, you got to call somebody up. Hey, I don't know what to do in this situation. But a lot of times when the, when lives are far away from the Lord, and a lot of times it's in marriages, a lot of times it's just individuals, and I'll start talking to them and I'll ask them these questions right before they get started. How's your prayer life? Oh, well, you know, I, you know, I'm kind of busy. You're too busy to talk to the creator of the universe. You better cut something else out of your life. Can I get him into that? How's your time in the Word? Well, you know, uh, you know what's your favorite Bible verse? Oh, what's your what did God show you in your devotions this morning? Right? And the reason is that one of the reasons that we struggle is that we, we don't walk in intimate fellowship with God. I have yet to see anybody walking in intimate fellowship with God where He is the King of kings and Lord of lords of their life. He is the priority and passion of their life that doesn't have the joy of the Lord even in the midst of the greatest difficulty. Amen? Again, doesn't mean that we go, don't go through, doesn't mean we don't shed tears, but we have a biblical perspective. It changes everything. Josiah is that kind of man. At 26 years old, godly man, leading them, teaching God's word, his heart ripped open by the word of God. And so now we're going to continue to look at him this morning. And as we look at him this morning, I grab your outline, you should have it there. I titled the message. Stay humble, broken, and desperate. See, Josiah is a guy that if you hung out with him for a while, you might think this would be the last guy that would mess up. And the beginning of this chapter, he's going to continue to be a godly man. And you know what? In the end, he is a godly man. But he's going to allow one circumstance to come along where he decides that he can make the decision on his own instead of crying out to the Lord for direction. And you know what? As believers, we can fall into that trap. We can think there's a certain part of our lives we got that knocked out. I don't need prayer over there. I'm good. I figured that part of my life out. I've got that, I've got that handled. I'll pray for this over here. This is a struggle, but I don't have to do it over here. And we can become so assured of our own walk with the Lord, and we can become almost spiritually prideful, and we can act like we don't need any help, and we don't need any prayer. By the way, we have about 200 people here on a Sunday, and I'll get five prayer requests. So obviously, all of you guys, your lives are completely perfect. There's no issues in your life, or you just don't believe that prayer works. Does God answer prayer? What's the answer? Okay. So that prayer request box ought to be filled up every week. Amen? You have not because you ask not. So let's take a look at stay humble, broken, and desperate. Number one, putting feet to our faith. It's not enough 
to just hear God's word or to read God's word or even to share God's word with others. We are called to study God's word and apply it to our daily lives. Not faith or works, not faith plus works, but faith that works. Amen? So when we have faith in the Lord, it will produce good works. True faith changes not only our beliefs, but our actions. Point number two, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. We're going to look at some verses in this morning's text as he's reestablishing the Passover, where they're going to slaughter animals. And my wife is as big an animal person as there is on this planet. She loves, I mean, she wants to adopt every animal that we ever see. I mean, she's like Laura March Assault, you know who she is, okay? They've got like an ark in Texas, right? But the reality is that we, you know, she loves animals. And so when you read verses like skinning animals, shedding their blood, killing animals, uh, a lot of people really struggle with that. But here's what we have to remember, that the blood that is shed by those animals is pointing to someone else whose blood is going to be shed on the cross of Calvary. Amen? And we need to recognize that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. The blood of bulls and goats cannot redeem you, but it does point to the one who will. And so we're going to see that in tonight's text, that while salvation is a free gift, it's not cheap. It was a heavy price that was paid for it. It's free to us. It costs our Savior everything. Amen? Point number three, we must never become prideful, self-reliant, or complacent in our relationship with the Lord. As soon as we cease to be humble, broken, and desperate, uh, take heed lest you fall. You're ready for destruction. I meet people that are spiritually arrogant, and that just tells me they're spiritually immature. Because anybody, as you grow closer to the Lord, the more you're going to hate your sin. Amen? The more you're going to recognize that you're a sinner. Apostle Paul, at the beginning of his ministry, said, I'm the least of the apostles. At the end of his ministry, he called himself the chief of sinners. Do you think he was sinning more at the end of his, of his... No. What it was, he was closer to God, and he hated his own sin more. Amen? And too often, you have people that are sin sniffers and comparing themselves to everyone else, and you know, they're the judge of everyone else's life and their own walk. If, if, you're, if that's you, you're prideful, you need to repent, you need to be humble, and you know what? Knock it off in Jesus' name. Amen? So take heed lest ye fall. The most vulnerable are those that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, and we start to think we have it all under control, and all it takes is one false step to destroy decades of a testimony. You can have a godly testimony for decades. You can take one false step, and that's what you'll be remembered for. And I'm not, I'm not talking about a much, but you know, there's so many people that we could name and people that walk with the Lord a long time, and then you hear their name, and all you remember is the adultery or the stealing money or they you know, walked, away, they walked away from their marriage or whatever it was. And what will happen is that's what you remember about them. When you think of Judas, what do you think of? He betrayed the Lord. Did he walk with the Lord for three years before that? Was he trusted by, by the apostles? What's the answer? He was the guy carrying the money around. You trust that dude? Amen? And what happens? Nobody remembers anything about him but his betrayal. And you know what? We as believers, we must never come to a place where we get complacent, where we cease to be desperate for God where we cease to cry out to him daily and ask him to walk with us. And we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We need to be in prayer and be in the word. Walking with the Lord for a long time does not exempt you from making fleshly choices that result in heavy consequences. Then lastly, you can tell a lot about a person's character by who mourns for them when they die. I've done, I don't know how many funerals, a lot. And I've done funerals where there are literally a thousand people there, and I've done funerals where there's three people there. And I've done funerals where you listen to the people talk about the person that died and you go away inspired. And then I've done funerals where nobody gets up and says anything about them because their life had no impact on anybody. And we're going to see in tonight's text that Josiah's life had an impact. And we're going to see it because of the people who mourned for him and how they mourned. I remember doing my dad's funeral. My dad was a pastor for 60 years. A lot of my friends came to the funeral, and afterward they said, I had no idea 
that your dad had such a huge impact on so many people's lives. And to be honest with you, I knew my dad had a huge impact, but going to his funeral, it just blessed me to see person after person after person after person after person saying, God used him to lead me to the Lord. He was my pastor. And guys, we want to live a life in such a way that if we went to heaven tomorrow, that people would be talking about our relationship with Jesus more than anything else. Amen? That's what we should want to be remembered for. So let's begin. They're looking at stay humble, broken, and desperate, and first by putting feet to our faith. So he's been, he's read the word. We're going to see that. He's read the word. He's been applying it to his life. Now watch what happens here in tonight's text. Again, we'll see that faith in action as he obeys God's word. He's been reading it, but it's one thing to read it, and it's another thing to live it. It's another thing to study it. It's another thing to apply it to your life. Look at verse one. Now, Josiah kept a Passover, kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. Now, how Passover had not happened for hundreds of years until Hezekiah reinstated it back in chapter 30. By the time we get to chapter 35, evil kings have come. The temple's been, you know, destroyed in a sense where they've you know, thrown garbage in it and they're, they're not worshiping the Lord anymore. And here's Josiah at 16 years old and he's going to re, and now he's 26 at this point, reinstating worship. Now, how does he even know that there's supposed to be a Passover? Because the last Passover that took place, he wasn't born yet. So how, does, how do you think he knows? The word of God. See, the reason that he knows we're supposed to be making sacrifices. We're supposed to have the Passover. How does he even know about the Passover? Because he read Exodus. And Exodus talked about their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. He read Numbers. He read Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. And so he knows what the word of God says. And he doesn't just say, well, that's kind of a neat story. He says, oh, by the way, we're all doing that. This whole nation, we're doing it. We're going to have Passover again. And why do we have Passover? To remember God delivering the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt to see the mighty hand of God. You know, and Passover was them looking back in remembrance of the miracle that God performed, the, the, the plagues upon the land, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, God's uh, voice coming from Mount Sinai, the, you know, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that led him through the wilderness, all of that. And he reads that. He says, oh, oh, you know what? Look at the calendar. It's getting close to Passover time. So here he is. He's going to reinstate Passover. And to reinstate Passover is not going to be easy because most of the priests that are alive have never done it. So he's going to have to educate the priest. He's going to have to get volunteers involved. He's going to have to donate the animals to make it happen. This was a time of remembrance, again, of God's deliverance of his people and the miracle that God had done and the goodness of God, not only delivering them from their bondage in Egypt, but bringing them into the land of promise. They're taking a step back in remembrance. Now, what do we do that compares to that today? They were taking a step back in remembrance of Passover, what do we take a step back in remembrance of on the first Sunday of every month? Communion. Communion or the Lord's Supper, right? And what are we doing when we take the Lord's Supper? We're looking back to the cross. They're looking back to Passover, the blood of the lamb in the shape of a cross that delivered them. And we take a step back and we remember the cross of Calvary. Guys, the cross should never grow common. Amen? It should be something that we're thankful for every single day. Judah and Israel had been living lives of sin and idolatry. And Isaiah, I mean, Josiah, having read the word, now obeys the word. And the Passover celebrated on the 14th day of the first month as commanded in God's word. Guys, if you don't obey God's word and you use the excuses because you don't read it, the consequences will be just the same. Ignorance of God's word is not an excuse to walk in disobedience to God's word. Amen? The biggest problem we have in America, and even in many of the churches in America, is biblically illiterate people. Amen? God's word is the thing that will bring revival and transform lives. So notice it says they slaughtered the Passover lambs. Okay, so without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. So what did they do? They would, bring, they would go get a lamb, and for many people who were not, you know, didn't raise 
animals, right? They weren't, so what did they have to do? Many of them, not in this case, because this is the first one, but what they would do is knowing that Passover's coming, they would literally save money all year so that they could go buy a perfect lamb. They couldn't have a crippled lamb. They couldn't have, you know, a lamb that was sick. They needed a perfect lamb. And then they had to bring that lamb home and watch it for four days to make sure that it wasn't sick, that it didn't have any issues. And then they would take that lamb, and you know what happened in four days? The kids would, you know, be petting on that lamb. And the family's getting attached to that lamb. And then after four days, each family had to bring a lamb. Every family. There wasn't one lamb for the nation. There was one lamb for every family, a lamb or a goat. And you brought it, and then they would, the priest would slit the lamb's throat, and the blood would pour into a basin. And then they would take that blood, in this case, and sprinkle it on the altar. And so what would happen was there'd be an attachment. And the reason that attachment was important is to recognize that something innocent has to die so I can be forgiven because it's pointing to the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Amen? So it looks barbaric to people like, what kind of weird? Well, wait a minute. Do you understand why we do that? Do you understand why God instilled that? Because he wanted to let them know that, what, that sin's forgiveness comes at a heavy price. Somebody's life is taken so you can live. And we see it with these animals. They were sacrificed on behalf of another. They died in the place of sinners. They paid the price that they could not pay. It says in verse 2, And he set the priests in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. So he read through the Bible. He read through the Septuagint, the first five books. And he understood that it was more than just a desire to do something for the Lord he had to reestablish the Passover system. So what he had to do is take the Bible and study it. So what do they do on the Passover? And when do they make the sacrifices? And what day of the year does it take place? Oh, and here's what the priests do. And here's what the Levites do. Go through Leviticus. It's got it all written down for you. And then he would have to take all of that and bring in his, the, the priests and the Levites and say, let me show you what you guys are supposed to be doing at Passover. And so he's educating them. So Josiah was the king, but he was also a man who shared the word. And I don't care what job you have in life, every single one of us, while you may not be called to be a pastor, to teach the word in front of a, a group of people, we all should be able to open up the Bible and share about Jesus with people that we meet. Amen? You, you should know him well enough. Look, if you're married, it's probably not hard for you to introduce your spouse to somebody or to explain who they are or tell them about. When I meet people, I always ask them, how you guys, tell me about your wife. And the, and the man, here it is, tell me about your husband. Boy, they got to, well, guess what? As much as you love your spouse, you're supposed to love Jesus more because we're the bride of Christ, amen? And, we, and if you love him, you should be able to tell people about him. It shouldn't be that difficult, amen? You know when it's difficult? When you don't read your Bible, when you're not in fellowship, we don't spend time with the Lord. If I never spent time with my wife, I couldn't describe her to you and she would divorce me. Can I get an amen to that? And so Josiah not only read the word, but he put it in action. Oh man, we, we pastor, oh, it's coming. I got to get these guys ready. We need to do this in remembrance of what the Lord had done for us. Notice it says there in verse two, he encouraged them. You know what? I'm a big believer and encouraging people when God's using them. Now, I served under one pastor who I don't remember him ever, not that it mattered, but he was not a guy that ever gave you a compliment or anybody's staff ever, ever. So you, I would fill in on Sundays. This is a big church, thousands of people. And he'd be gone and, and you know, you teach and you're like, well, hope that went okay for him and never hear another word. And then you find out five months later when he asks you to teach again, well, I guess last time was okay because he's going to let me teach again. And there are certain people like that. And he's like, you get, your, you, get your, you get your encouragement from the Lord, not from me. Okay, but there's a man in the Bible named Barnabas. He's the son of what? Son of encouragement. And I'm a big believer that when people are being used by the Lord, that we should encourage them. Amen? Now, again, don't praise them. Don't worship them. Don't glorify them. But like I tell her, hey, man, worship was, was awesome this morning. I was blessed, right? You know, hey, I, I listened to the study when you were gone. I was really blessed and encouraged by it. Now, again, he's going to encourage these priests. Like, this is what we're called to do. This is what you need to do. Here's the, here's the calling you've been given. Here's how Passover works. And then he encourages them. 
You know why we need to be encouraged? Because sometimes we're discouraged. Amen? We need to be encouraged sometimes because sometimes we get overwhelmed and we wonder if what we're doing for the Lord is having any kind of an impact. And, and again, it's good, and he encourages them, and that's, again, type of a, a Barnabas. One of my duties as a pastor of this church is to encourage people to use their gifts. I love stretching people. You'll notice that when I'm gone on a Sunday or a Thursday, we don't call in outside people ever. I mean, I shouldn't say ever, rarely. The last time we did it was Ken Graves was in town and my son had lived with him for a year and a half. That was, I don't know when that was, two or three years ago. Why? Because I want to help people develop their gifts that go to church here. So how do we do that? We use them. Same thing with worship. Do we bring in guest worship from other churches or we, we just say, hey, you're leading, okay, you led worship in the junior, you can come lead worship on Sunday. Why? Because we want you to grow and we want to encourage you to use your gifts. Amen? And the only way that happens is we got to get you out of your comfort zone. The men's study, we have different guys teaching, women's study, different people, why? Children's ministry, right? Because again, if we, if we don't encourage you, if we don't allow you to try to use the gifts you've been given by the Lord, you'll, not, you'll just sit on the sideline your whole life. And so he is encouraging them to take the gifts God given them and use them for his glory. Love to give people opportunities to serve. It's a blessing. Verse three, then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel, who were holy to the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God with his people Israel. How does he know where the ark belongs? He read it in the Bible. You're going to hear that a bunch of times tonight, okay? He read it in the Bible. Where does the ark belong? Wait a minute. The ark's not there. You know why the ark's not there? Because they had put idols in the temple. And some of the priests more than likely had taken the ark away so it wouldn't get destroyed and had it somewhere. And they were carrying it around from place to place. It's supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. But because of the wicked kings and they had thrown garbage in there and they put, some of them had put idols in there and they're worshiping idols in there, they said, we're taking the ark out of there. So he goes to the priest and leave it. Guys, go get the ark, put it back in the holy place. That's where it belongs. How does he know that? He read the word of God. Amen? Put it back. Was the ark... The ark was not in the temple. Go back in chapter 33, and it said, he set a carved image, just speaking of Manasseh. He set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes, I will put my name forever. They had, they had corrupted the place that God had created for worship. And so they now have cleaned it out. And because they've cleaned it out, they can bring the ark back. And why does he know the ark belongs there? Because he's reading the word. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. You're not going to have to carry it around anymore. It's going to be in its resting place. Its resting place is in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. Verse 4, he says, prepare yourselves according to your father's houses, according to your divisions, following the written instruction of David, king of Israel, and written instruction of Solomon, his son. How does he know the written instructions of David and Solomon? How does he know? Because he read the word. And guess what? The Levites, there were three uh, different families within the Levites, the Kohathites, the Merarites, and the Gershonites. And what he did is he said, look, God gave them, back in the Septuagint, these are your calling and your gifting. And each of them had different giftings. Uh, one of the groups, uh, these are all sons of Levi. Uh, one carried around the sanctuary coverings. One carried around all the furnishings. So like when the tabernacle would move and they rebuild it, they each had jobs. And so what he's calling them to do is he's getting them back to work. All that is stopped. There's been idolatry in the land. So he brings them in and says, this is the job that God gave your family. You need to do that. This is the job God gave your family. You need to do that. This is the job God gave your family. You need to do that. See, that's the body of Christ. Everybody in this room has a gift. You've been supernaturally gifted by God. And I would say, if not all of you have at least one, probably more than one gift. And so for the church to function properly, we all have to be using the gifts we've been given. And so because he read the word, he's again, I titled verses one through nine, putting feet to our faith. He's exhorting each of these people, use the gift you've been given. Use the gift you've been given. Remember what God's called you to do and be faithful to that. Verse five, and stand in the holy place 
according to the divisions of your father's house, uh, houses of your brethren, the lay people, and according to the division of the father's house of the Levites. So again, each person, each tribe had its own calling and duties, and they all needed to serve and be faithful for things to operate properly. Verse 6, so slaughter the Passover offerings, consecrate yourselves, prepare them for the brethren that you may do according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Slaughter the Passover offerings. One of the main features of the Passover was the sacrifice of, again, a lamb for each household. This meant uh, a substantial amount of work for the priest. So they're just, they're kind of getting thrown in the deep end of the pool. Okay, we're going to have Passover again. That means every family is going to bring a lamb to be sacrificed, and you guys need to do all of it. That'd be like if you'd never taught a Bible study in your life, and you're in the front row over here, and I go, hey, by the way, uh, yeah, we're going to have a big revival here. There's going to be 5,000 people here, and you're teaching. Well, that's what's happening. These guys are like, well, we have, have you ever done a sacrifice? No, I haven't done Have you done it? Well, we haven't done these around here in a long time. Hey, Passover, we haven't had Passover here as long as I've been alive. Oh, here, we're reading the instructions. How many of these were doing? One for every family in all of Judah. I don't know how many that was, but it was a lot. Notice it also says, to be used by God, consecrate yourself. The word consecrate in Hebrew is, uh, is kadah, or kadash, and it means to sanctify, prepare, dedicate, be holy, be separated. It means set apart for holy use. So guys, before we can be used by God, we need to walk in intimate fellowship with God. Amen? And we need to set ourselves apart unto the Lord to live holy and set apart lives. It doesn't mean we're sinless, but we should walk in intimate fellowship with God and be living lives set apart to the Lord. And those are the men and women that God will use. Amen? And so if we want to be used by God, we need to walk in intimate fellowship with God. It tells them to prepare the holy sacrifices, to set themselves apart for holy use, and again, be consecrated, set apart from the world, living a holy and dedicated life unto the Lord. Then it says in verse 7, then Josiah gave the lay people lambs and young goats from the flock, all for Passover offerings, for all who were present, to the number of 30,000, as well as 3,000 cattle. These were from the king's possessions. Now, Josiah not only read the word, but he understood what had been happening in Judah. And for many years, there had been no Passover. And so now that Passover is being reinstated, most of these families would not have had, a, had time to uh, save money to buy a lamb or to raise a lamb. And so what does he do to make sure there's no excuse for anybody not to be a part of Passover? He's going to take and give them his own animals to sacrifice. That's a good king. Can I get an amen to that? What does he say? Look, we're not going to have an excuse for the reason why you can't observe Passover. So every family, so he gives 30,000 sheep. So now we give at least an idea of how many sacrifices those priests are going to make. 30,000. Also 3,000 cattle. And those would be for the burnt offerings and the sin offering and the, you know, the, these other offerings that would take place during the Feast of Leavened Bread that took place right after Passover. So here he is offering, saying, look, I want you to serve the Lord, and I want you to come and be a part of Passover. And look, don't worry about it. I'll make sure you have, I'm going to give you the animal you need so you can come and worship the Lord. You know, one of the things that we say here all the time at Calvary Chapel is we say, look, we don't ever want you to miss out on ministry because finances are a problem. There's a men's retreat and you want to go and you don't have the money, you let us know, we'll take care of it. Amen? Why? Because we, it's all God's resources and we want to make sure that if there's, you know, if there's a youth retreat, anything like that, we're going to, we'll just cover Why? Because guys, it's about being able to, to experience all that God has for you, be ministered to you as much as possible. And that's exactly what Josiah, so here's Josiah. You know, a lot of kings, you know, they're, they're, they were measured by how much livestock they had. Part of their riches was, oh, how much livestock do you have? You know, how many chariots do you have? How many horses do you have? Right? And he doesn't care. 
You know, that's going to make him look less wealthy to the other kings that surround him. Josiah doesn't care what other kings think. He cares about what the king of kings knows about him. Amen? He said, look, I don't care. I don't, I, I, so what if I have less than somebody else? So what if I'm going to give, God's called me to give to something so I can help somebody else and minister to somebody else and use it for God's glory, and it means I'm not going to get a new car for another year. So what? See, the mentality is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen? And I'm not saying you can't buy stuff. I'm just saying that, look, you can tell where somebody's priorities are, and Josiah is a great example for us here. Again, people who are not priests and Levites, as King Josiah reinstitutes the Passover, knowing that most of them would not be able to afford it, just took that away as even an issue. Look, I'm just going to give you all the animals that you need. He was willing to bear the expense more than double the offerings that Hezekiah had when he reestablished Passover. When you go back and look at Hezekiah in chapter 30, they didn't sacrifice this many. So the kingdom has grown. There's more people. And he's saying, look, we're just going to take care of it. That's, that's a godly heart of a godly king who desires that his people walk with the Lord. Amen? Put feet to your faith. He's not going to let there be a roadblock. Look at verse 8 and 9. And his leaders gave willingly to the people, to the priests, to the Levites. Hilkah, Zechariah, and Jehuel, rulers of the house of God, gave to the priests for the Passover offerings 2,600 from the flock and 300 cattle. Here's what happens. He says, look, we're going to take care of all of it. And we're going to minister to all the people. And then you had other people who said, well, no, I can help. I can give. When I was a youth pastor in uh, San Jose and in Lancaster, sometimes we'd have 40 kids that couldn't afford to go to camp. You know, we'd maybe be taking 100, right? And there might be 40 kids that couldn't pay. And almost, almost inevitably, somebody would walk up and go, hey, Pastor Dave, how many people, how many, I know the youth group's going on and thing. How many kids can't pay? I'm like, oh, it's, it's about 40. How much is it? Uh, it's about 150 a kid. Write you a $6,000 check here. Just take care of it. Right? There's somebody who says, I want to invest in young people's lives. So even though the church would have covered it anyway, God put on someone's heart to cover it. In this case, Josiah said, we're going to give you the animals. Yet people still came and wanted to make sure the priests were taken care of and make sure that the Levites that were serving and teaching them the word were taken care of and make sure that if anybody didn't have an animal to sacrifice, that it was taken care of. So they're coming and bringing these things before the Lord. Guys, we can't outgive God. Amen? And then it says there, verse 9, also Kananiah, his brothers Shimei and Nethanel and Hashbah, and Jael and Josabad, chief of the Levites, gave to the Levites for Passover offerings 5,000 from the flock and 500 cattle. So guys, as Josiah has already said, it's not going to be an issue. We're going to take care of it. More people are coming and giving so that the Lord would be honored, that the, the Lord would be glorified, and that worship would take place. Seeing the example of grace, Josiah was a good leader who learned to give to his people but he's not the only one who gives. Now the rest of the leaders are giving as well. The heart of the leaders was to make sure that the financial inability would not keep a family again from coming to God in worship. And I've learned this too. I never, I, I, I've told you guys this before. I don't know who gives what or even if you give it all. I don't. And I don't want to know. And the reason, I know the, the, the amount given, so we know how to, you know, what ministries that we're helping with and, you know, things that we're doing here on campus and all that kind of stuff. And people in the church that have a need, we help them, those kinds of things. So I know the dollar amount, but I don't know who gives and who doesn't because I don't even want to have for even half a second in the back of my mind treating somebody different because somebody gives and somebody doesn't. I don't even want that to even be, and I don't, and I just don't want to, and I don't want to touch the, touch the money anyway. That's how I'm built. I just don't want to do it, right? Well, let someone else do that. I want to be above reproach, right? Now, that being said, when, I put some, when we put someone in leadership, when we recognize that God's putting someone in a position of a pastor or spiritual leader in, within the church, I do ask the person that keeps track of all the giving. I don't ask how much. I just say, does he give? And if the answer is no, he's not going to lead here because a man who doesn't give should not lead. Can I get an amen to that? Okay? And again, don't give so you can lead, right? But a leader gives. And you know what? A spiritually mature believer gives. Amen? And you know, you know who we are. We don't even pass an offering around here. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to raise money. I don't do that. I know that God will provide. But I do want you to know that the closer we get to the Lord, the more we love to give. 
God loves a cheerful giver. If you're giving out begrudgingly, don't give. God will provide. Don't worry about it. All right, point number one there, put feet to your faith. So again, when, when God's got a hold of you, you're going to see some actions change. God's gotten a hold of Josiah. He got a hold of the word. It's changed his life. He's implementing it all in the nation. He's still 26 years old. He's a young man. And God's using him in a mighty and a powerful way. Point number two. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. So notice what it says. So the service was prepared, and the priests stood in their places, and the Levites in their divisions, according to the king's command, and they slaughtered the Passover offerings. The priests sprinkled their blood with their hands while the Levites skinned the animals. Who wants that job? Thank you, Jesus, that... The veil is torn. It is finished. Amen? We're not dragging lambs in here on Sundays. Thank you, Lord. We're not cutting blood and sprinkling on an altar. Now, but why is that necessary? Why was that necessary? Why did that have to be done? Because they needed to recognize that, that, that the, the forgiveness for sin comes at a heavy price. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. And so... Can you imagine being one of these priests and you're slaughtering 30,000 sheep? What do you look like when you're done? You're covered in blood. Amen? When Jesus hung on the cross, do you know the Bible says that he didn't even look like a man? They literally tortured him so much and beat him so much and scourged him that he was unrecognizable and he was covered in blood and he had nails in his hands and in his feet. He had a crown of thorns in his head. Thorns in the Bible represent sin. The sin of mankind was placed upon him. And he endured that torment, that suffering, and that shame out of love for you. It wasn't nails that held him there. It was his love for you that held him there. That's our God. Amen? And so when we see the blood of lambs, it was all pointing to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so they come in, and this is a bloody mess. Those of you who are going to Israel with us, we're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was on the night he was arrested, where he had gone before with his disciples to pray, when you're in the Garden of Gethsemane, you literally look out, and there's a little, like, a gully that goes down, and you look across, and there's Jerusalem right there. It's right there. And the place where Jesus would be crucified, you can see it. It's right there. And what would happen is, Jesus was arrested at Passover. And there were sacrificing all the lambs. So when Jesus walked back into Jerusalem after they had arrested, by the way, who arrested who? Amen? Are you Jesus of Nazareth? What did he say? I am. And what happened? They all fell down. Now who arrested who? Amen? He could have just, can you imagine, he gets just kept saying, I am, and they all fell down. They got up, he goes, I am, they all fell down again. I am. Right? <laughs> could have just, I am, them into the ground. He didn't do that because it was time for him to go to the cross. But he said, I am. And so they were only able to take him because he allowed it. But as he walked into, back into Jerusalem, where he would now then be scourged and you know, mocked in the crown of thorns and all of that, put on trial, people yelling, crucify him. As he walked over before, as that was about to begin, as that time was beginning, it was the Lamb of God walking over the blood of lambs that was flowing through the brook Kidron. Guys, it all points to Jesus. It always has. It always will. It's always been about him. Amen? And so here we have this blood being shed in such numbers that would be hard for us to even understand. And again, the shedding of blood is necessary to pay the price for the guilty. And again, his body was so beaten and so marred for us. Look at verse 12. Then they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the divisions of the fathers, the houses of the lay people to offer to the Lord as it is written in the book of Moses, so they did to the cattle. So because he read the Bible, they also, along with the sacrifices, you know, the Passover sacrifice, they also did burnt offerings and sin offerings and, and, and peace offerings. And some of those offerings, they would take some of that meat and they would give it to the families. And why would they do that? Let me tell you why. In the Hebrew culture, when you sit down and have a meal with somebody, they literally believe that you became a part of that person because you're sharing 
some, something from the same animal, and as you both share it, you kind of become one with each other. So if we're taking a sacrifice and we're burning half of it to the Lord, to Almighty God, and then we're taking the other a portion of it home and we're eating it, it's like we are becoming one with the Lord in a sense. Does that make sense? So for them, it was like, you know, this sacrifice was made to the Lord and I'm taking part in a part of it. So I'm becoming one with the Lord. Now, as born again believers, we are now filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. And he never leaves us nor forsakes us. So the Passover there, that's why those offerings were so, so significant. Then it says in verse 13, and they roasted the Passover offerings with fire according to the ordinance. Again, according to the word of God. How did they know? Because he read it. And by other holy offerings, they boiled the pots, the cauldrons, and the pans, and divided them quickly among all the lay people. So all the people who didn't serve in the, the tabernacle or in the temple, they were all given a portion of these offerings that they would share. With, share. Now, we know that that also happened with those who served. They, they had different offerings where they got a piece of it. So Jewish culture, again, then sharing in that meal was of great significance to the people. Verse 14, then afterward, they prepared portions for themselves. These are the people making the sacrifices. And for the priests, because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were busy in an offering, burnt offerings, and fat until, until night. Therefore, the Levites prepared portions for themselves and for the priests, the sons of Aaron. So they're making sacrifices from sunup to sundown. And as they're making all these sacrifices, they never get away to eat. So what do the Levites do? The Levites go and take a portion of what's been sacrificed, they prepare it for them, and they bring it to feed them. You know, that's in, in the Bible talks about deacons. You guys, you guys know what a deacon is? What's a deacon? What does that word mean? Diakonos. What does it mean? It means servant. It means servant. What a deacon is, is we see it in, in Deuteronomy 6, but what, what happens is that the when you have people serving, and the same thing we see waiters at tables, when you see the apostles in the New Testament, right? The apostles are doing a lot, and then they, they raise up deacons. And what do the deacons do? The deacons take care of the practical, so the people that are called to lead spiritually can lead spiritually, and the people that do the practical do the practical so they can be freed up to do it. Because if the person who's called to, to be the teacher or whatever, if that person has to do everything, nothing gets done. And so the point is that we all, have this we all have a practical calling upon our lives, and there are people that literally have such a practical calling that they gave them a title in the Bible, and it's a deacon, right? And it just means a servant. And so they're waiters of tables. So in this case, they came along, and they were making sure these guys are shedding the animal blood all day long, and they're making the sacrifices all day long, and they come along and make sure that they're fed and ministered to. It's in Acts chapter 6 for deacons. I said Deuteronomy, I don't know where that came from. Acts chapter 6. In those days, again, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily uh, administration. And then the 12 called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, it's not good for us that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And so they basically told them, you guys wait on the tables so we can serve. You know, it's interesting. I really saw this when I did the baptism down at... Uh, Pirates Cove. Some of you know that I got a call at the last minute, drove down, and uh, they baptized 4,500 people that day. There were 20,000 people on the hill. It was amazing. One of the most, one of the most just amazing days of my life. I was supposed to baptize for two hours. I stayed out there for like five and a half or however long it was. But we're out there in the water. I'm not even thinking about being hungry. I'm so excited about all these people are getting saved and all these people are getting baptized. I, I could have gone without food for a month. All of a sudden, these guys come out literally in the ocean holding trays above their head with sandwiches on it. And they're coming around, you know, and you're, you're standing there and I'm like, and they got, you know, they got, and they like, they come up, okay, hey, you want a sandwich? You know, I'm like, deacon, can I get an amen to that? <laughs> right? Somebody thought about it. I would have never thought about it, you know, but just, again, waiters of tables serving in practical ways. Do we need people serving in practical ways for church to happen? What's the answer? Absolutely. We wouldn't even have church. It wouldn't happen if somebody didn't set up and tear down and, you know, and, and do the, you know, the live stream and the worship, all that stuff. So you need people to serve in a practical way. Now watch the greatness of Josiah's Passover. Look what happens beginning there in verse 15. 
And it says there, you know, um, they're offering offerings until night. And it says, and the singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their places, according to the command of David, Asaph, Heman, Jedithan, the king's seer, all the gatekeepers were at the each gate, and they did not have to leave their position because the brethren and Levites prepared portions for them. So there were people. Now, this is what jo- we noticed in Josiah. We saw this last week. Josiah loved worship. So when they, whenever they were doing anything, he just had people doing worship. Yeah, we're going to be doing, we're going to be slaughtering lambs over here. Get over there and play some music. When people come in, we want them worshiping. We want them entering into his courts with praise. Amen. We want them coming in, holding that lamb, but also to be worshiping the Lord at the same time. But notice that there were also people that while the people were leading worship, they went and made portions for them and made sure that they were taken care of. But I love Josiah because he loved the Lord. It doesn't tell tell us in Passover instructions to worship, but he worships anyway because he sees that there should always be worship. One of the many things about what my wife does for our house that makes our house a home we have an Alexa, and I know you all think they're from the devil. Okay, I get it. But we have an Alexa on, our, on my wife's desk, and it plays Christian music 24 hours a day. And I just love when I walk in the house and I just hear Christian music. I love it. Amen? It just worship is going on in our house. We have Bible verses on the wall. But again, Josiah took what he knew he was supposed to do with Passover, and he added worship and said, yeah, we're going to worship the Lord while we're making sacrifices. And again, I just love that picture, worshiping. Verse 16, and it says there, so the service of the Lord was prepared in the same day to keep the Passover, to offer burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. Notice what he told him. Look at verse 17 as well. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Here's what happened. He read in the word the Passover was to happen on this day, the 14th day. And so they did everything on that day. He had a sense of urgency to be about it that day. Not, hey, you know, we're going to start Passover this week, and then if we don't get to all of it, you guys can come back in a month and we'll do it. That's not what happened. We're going to sacrifice the animals. We're going to make the sacrifice. We're going to sprinkle the bloods of the lamb. We're going to feed on that. We're going to, right, all this, all this sacrifices, we're all going to take place in that one day. And each time, sprinkling that blood on the altar... That's what we're doing. We're doing it one day. We're doing it today. Guys, as believers, we should have a sense of urgency to be about it for the kingdom of God today. Amen? Not six months, not 10 years, not 15 years from now. That ask God to use you today. God wants to use you for his kingdom and for his glory. By the way, the people that grow the most are often the people that serve the most. It just works out that way. Because it's a get to and not a have to. Amen? Verse 18. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept with the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They go back. They're saying there had never been a Passover like Josiah's Passover, and it was the first Passover he had ever done. He read what the Bible said, and he did all of it and then some. It says, going back to the days of Samuel, Samuel was before King David and King Solomon. So literally, it's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and this is Josiah's first time having Passover, but he read what the Word of God said. He did it. He put the people in the places where they needed to be. He gave the animals that needed to be given, and he brought in the worship team so worship could take place, and it was the greatest Passover they had ever had. Why? Because he did it as unto the Lord with everything that he had. Amen? Love, Josiah. Look what it says here. In the 18th year of his reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. Well, he became king at eight. And even those of you who go to public school probably know that 18 plus eight is how much? I went to public school myself. I'm mocking myself, okay? 26. He's 26 years old. You know, the Bible tells us that do not let them look down upon you because of your youth. Amen? That God can use you if you're called and gifted by God at a young age. You don't have to be a certain age to be used by the Lord for his kingdom and for his glory. So good to see such a love for the Lord and commitment to his word at such a young age. It blesses me to see our high school age and college age 
uh, kids in this church who are being used by the Lord and faithfully serving God. What a blessing. Amen? Point number three, you must never become prideful, self-reliant, complacent in a relationship with the Lord. So look, we talked about Manasseh, evil, 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 right? 45 minutes of evil. And then I went, and he repented. Yay, God. Amen? Now, we've been talking about Josiah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Faithful, 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 faithful. Reading the Bible, doing what it says. Reading the Bible, doing what it says. Reading the Bible, doing what it says. Uh Uh-oh. Look what happens. Verse 20. Take heed lest you fall. Must never become prideful or self-reliant. Look what it says. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Karshemush by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. Let me tell you who these people are. So Assyria was to the north, and they were the ones that conquered Israel in the north. The Assyrians were the ones that were at the, you know, when Hezekiah rebuilt the temple, he said, we'll take care of them later. We're going we're gonna to put God first. So the Assyrians had been the dominant army in the land. They, the person he's talking about here is the Pharaoh or the king of Egypt, Necho, the king of Egypt. So the king of Egypt is going to go help Assyria fight Babylon. So Babylon is rising up. Babylon is going to be the ones that are going to end up taking the people in Judah captive, including Daniel, among others. They're going to come in three waves and take them all captive. But Babylon is growing as an army. And the Assyrians have started to be defeated, and they're getting smaller. So the king of Egypt made a treaty with the Assyrians and said, I'll go help you fight Babylon. Well, Egypt has to go up through the Middle East, you know, to get to fight to this battle. And so they're coming alongside Judah. And Josiah sees them and decides to go attack them. Now, he's going to go attack them. What's missing from this verse? Prayer. Here's what can happen after a while. God's blessing you. God's using you. He sees the Egyptians. That's an enemy. Let's go fight them. Let's just go attack them. God didn't tell him to do it, but he decided it's something he wanted to do. Now, the Babylonians, again, were rising in strength. And so he was actually taking the side, without really thinking about it, of the enemy that would end up overthrowing his people and taking them captive. He was actually taking their side without even knowing it because they were going to go meet the Assyrians and go fight the Babylonians. And instead, he's going after the Egyptians who are on their way up to fight this battle. Guys, we need to make sure that when we step out to do things that we have heard from the Lord and we didn't just think it was a good idea. Amen? Too often say, oh, that's a good idea. I think I'll do that. Now, again, I think in every decision we ought to pray. But certainly, big decisions, we definitely ought to pray. Amen? We ought to seek the Lord and wait upon the Lord and hear from Him. Now, watch what happens in verse 21. So he's going to go fight against them by the Euphrates, but he sent messengers to him saying, what do I have to do with you, king of Judah? I've not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste and refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Now, the Egyptian king says to Josiah, I have no problem with you. Why are you attacking me? And by the way, it's your God that's sending me to fight these guys. Now, I think I would doubt it because are the Egyptians like, do they believe in God? Any idols in Egypt? As idolatrous as it gets. So I can understand that he would think, dude, this guy's blowing smoke because he doesn't even know my God. But that being said, wouldn't it be a good idea to get on your knees and ask God what you should do? He's telling him, don't meddle with me. Your God has told me to go. And we're going to find out later, our God did tell him to go. But instead of taking time to hear from the Lord himself, he's going to continue moving in his flesh. And there's no prayer. There's no worship. Who likes to worship? Josiah. No worship here. Doesn't worship. So quick history lesson. In 609 BC, Assyria had become weak and had lost practically all of their empire because of the Babylonians. And so they were gathering together with the Assyrians. Uh, They got Egypt to help them, and they're going to go fight this battle. And Egypt was more fearful of Babylon than Assyria. So they launched this attack 
and they had to go through Palestine to get there. And again, this would have been one of the greatest battles in all of human history uh, with the fall of one of the leading world powers coming to an end. And Josiah apparently either took the Babylonian side or did, just didn't like the fact that they were marching near their land. And he's going to meet with the Pharaoh and he's not going to spend time asking the Lord what he should do. Truly a great warning for us and all who seek the Lord, his will, his wisdom in all decision. Because one decision uh, without the Lord can lead to great heartache and destruction. Amen? Now, please, I'm not picking on anybody. My sister, is, my sister looks like she's buying a house in Tennessee. The Cal exit just continues, right? Grew up here, lived her whole life. She sent me a text. Look at these houses in Tennessee. They're a dollar and a half. Right? So the point, <laughs> the point I'm making is, and here's what I say to everybody. And again, I believe that people pray and people go because God led them and they should. But we want to be moved by the Holy Spirit, not by Zillow. Can I get an amen to that? Right? And too often what will happen, somebody's thriving in their environment and they're growing spiritually and the enemy will use something to draw them away and then there are people that I, we've got people that have left our church two and a half years ago, still watching live stream, haven't found a church, and their walk with God isn't where it used to be. So that's, so what I'm saying is, seek the Lord when you make big decisions. Amen. If you're courting somebody, seek the Lord. If you're praying about a job change, seek the Lord. Uh, whatever you're doing in life, seek the Lord. Don't just do it on your own. Josiah here doesn't seek the Lord. He doesn't pray. I'm going to go after these guys. I'm attacking them. I'm not asking God what he thinks. I'm going to do this in my own strength. And God had blessed him so far because so far he was seeking the Lord. And his enemy even warned him, don't meddle with me. You're meddling against your own God if you do this. Again, I get it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust him either. But look what happens. Verse 22, nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him. But he disguised himself so that he might fight with him. And he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God so that he might fight in the valley of Megiddo. Megiddo is, is Har-Megiddo, is Armageddon. It's what, we're going to see that in Israel as well. It's where the last battle is going to take place on earth. Armageddon is going to take place there. Well, they're going, he's going to go head out into this battle. And again, it says in this text that he disguised himself. Let me tell you right now, if you're doing what God wants you to do, you don't have to disguise yourself. Amen? I'm going to put on a mask and ride in the second chariot, and you tell him you're the king. Remember that one? Right? And so what happens, if you're disguising yourself, if you're having to pretend to be somebody else, you're not walking in the center of God's will. And again, you can see how he might doubt his words, but what did he do? He decides to go out into the battle on his own. Let's see what happens. We're almost done here. Look at verse 23. It says in verse 23, says, and the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servant, take me away, for I am severely wounded. This man has been a godly example his whole life. This man has reestablished worship, reestablished the sacrificial system, making sacrifices unto the Lord. He's generous. He's godly. He's honoring the Lord. And then he makes this one decision without praying. And what happens? going to cost him his life. He's going to die because he went out into battle without the Lord with him. And even though he was disguised, one of those arrows found him. Amen. And this is what can happen when we take, when we make the mistake of taking our eyes off of the Lord. Take me away for I am wounded. And again, this was not a good time to lose a godly king because the rest of the kings of Israel from this point of Judah, all evil from this point forward. Last few verses. Final point, you can tell a lot about a person's character by who mourns when they die. Verse 24, his servants therefore took him out of the chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had. They brought him to Jerusalem so that he died. And he was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah, anybody heard of Jeremiah? Who's Jeremiah? He's a what? He's a prophet of God. Big book in the Bible, we'll be reading it soon, Okay. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah, and to this day, all the singing men and singing women speak of Josiah and their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and they indeed are written in the laments. People sang songs about him after he died. Jeremiah was heartbroken when he died. 
Jeremiah, it says, they're lamented for him, wept for him. All these godly people are lamenting for him. They're singing songs about him. This was a man that was used mightily by God, and you can see what his character was by how people responded after he died. Last two verses. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of the Lord and his deeds from the first to the last. Indeed, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. So Josiah was a godly man. There's not a doubt in my mind we're going to see him when we get to heaven. Amen? But sadly, how does Josiah's life end? Doesn't end on a good note. It was cut short in a sense. God, God knows he's numbered our days. But at the same time, you're going to see that the kings that take over for him are going to go on a slippery slope immediately. And not, not too long afterward, Babylon's going to take over. And so guys, God teaches us a lesson by the experience. It can be the experience. Best lesson is experience. And sometimes it's, it doesn't have to be our experience. It can be someone else's. If someone like Josiah, that was such a godly man, ask Joshua Camper what he just named his son. Josiah, okay? Why do you name him that? Because Josiah is a godly man. We've seen in a couple of chapters this godly young man being used mightily by the Lord. And you know what? If, it's, if Josiah rebelling against God, even for a moment, could have such heavy consequences, can the same thing happen to us? What's the answer? Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. You are indeed a great and an awesome God. Help us, Lord, to be people of holiness, faithfulness, obedience, not people of compromise. Lord, may we keep short accounts with you. When we do sin, may we be quick to repent, quick to cry out to you. And I pray for everyone who's here tonight that you'd stir us up and Help us to use the gifts you've given us for your kingdom and for your glory. And Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...